Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan from Mount Gambier, Australia, and this is my quest to teach the whole New Testament as deeply and helpfully as I can. So grab your Bible and a beverage of choice, and let's take a few intentional minutes together in the deep end. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Our passage for this episode is Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 36. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, they beat one, they killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. We have learned already that the vineyard is a picture of Israel, in particular the influence on the world that she was supposed to be. Being a light to the Gentiles was the intention, according to the servant song of Isaiah 42, something soon to be completely fulfilled in Jesus, the suffering servant. And of course, this makes the vineyard owner God we see that this vineyard is surprisingly fortified. There is a wall around it, meaning predators or intruders can't just waltz in and take what they want. There is a watchtower in it. People are employed to keep a watchful eye over the whole thing and be able to see looming threats a significant way off. Ominous storm clouds, approaching animals, sneaky people could all be seen with notice and faced with readiness. As I've said before, I live near a famous wine region called Kunawara, And I can tell you nothing is secure like that. The landowner has also gone to the expense and trouble of digging a wine press. This is a pretty decent structure and often a space shared in village life. But this vineyard is big enough to build its own, indicating it would create a hub for others in community as well. The owner then leaves it with an ordained staff. The tribe of Levi, the priesthood on one hand, and the tribe of Judah, the kings on the other. She became a wonderful, refreshing vineyard in the desert, something unexpected and even miraculous. It echoes the words of God in Hosea chapter 9, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. Once built, the owner leaves the workers to do their thing. The parable describes the arrangement as a tenancy, which means a mutually beneficial deal is in play here. But ultimately, the vineyard owner holds the greatest interest because of how much he had invested into it. The vineyard is clearly protected, unusually so. It's set up to succeed and it's put into qualified and capable hands. 
Put simply, it's expected to produce and benefit both the tenants and the owner. But in this parable, we see that the arrangement was not being upheld by the tenants. In fact, this arrangement was being violently opposed. The kings to some degree, but particularly the priests, should have led the nation to a point of ongoing productivity. And then the messengers, the prophets, should be able to guide them along the way in how they could continue to be light to the nations that they were intended to be. These were often the fine-tuners who would show the vineyard where her blind spots were, where power was being abused, where mercy and justice was absent, where the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner were being ignored or worse, and where idolatry or immorality was sneaking in. And when this went right, the nations around them would be in awe of their God and not dare to attack them. A number of prominent non-Jews even came seeking their God, which was in fact the purpose of things. But the prophets were rejected often and sometimes hunted down and even killed off. They were ill-treated and martyred on many occasions. They were agents of the vineyard owner, helping the nation bear better fruit. But for the most part, they were rejected at every turn. In the parable, there appears to be a point where the tenants simply don't want the owner as their oversight and would rather have the vineyard for themselves. They really haven't lifted a finger in accomplishing the productivity or safety they now sit in, but once they experience it, they want it all on their own terms, not the owners. This is demonstrated when they encounter the son and heir of the owner, the heir part they are particularly quick to identify in the parable. The owner sends his son in one act of hope that who he is carries some weight even at this damaged point in their relationship. This is one last go at healing the rift and getting the vineyard back to its purpose. There is also significant risk of the father in play here, certainly wondering if, as he sends his son, it will be the last time he ever sees him. And sadly, it all goes sour. The vineyard owners cross a line from which they just simply cannot come back from. They reject the son, mistaking it as an opportunity to gain something, in fact everything, for themselves. There would be a point in a couple of days' time where the nation would seek to do just that. John's account tells us they did one major thing to ensure the vineyard remained in their hands, publicly trusting pagan power over the heir of the divine vineyard owner. Interestingly, Jesus quizzes the audience about what the outcome of this arrangement would be. Now, if these priests knew their Old Testament narratives well, they perhaps should have taken a bit of care here and not respond as hasty as they did. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, King David, after committing adultery and murder, was confronted by Nathan the prophet. He was presented with a parable and asked how the matter would be sorted. In doing so, he actually pronounced judgment upon himself. The grisly fourfold repayment he outlined became his reality. And over time, the nation paid for his sin to some degree also. Those answering Jesus give a strong but correct answer. The original tenants would meet a grisly end after the king wields a rod of judgment. And a new arrangement will be made with new tenants, ones who hold the owner's interest at heart and have the goods to be truly fruitful for the vineyard owner. It appears these priests are pronouncing things for themselves here without knowing it. And they are doing so in the festival season of all times. A point that is clearly not lost on Jesus as he draws attention to Psalm 118 in response to them. He asks them if they are able to call to mind this psalm and he recites verses 22 and 23 to them. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This can only be dry, ironic wit in play here from Jesus. These men should be across this psalm in this particular setting. It's a key part of the liturgy of the Passover festival. 
It's the psalm that contains the phrase, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the psalm that was recently being recited with Jesus being at the center of it, and kids after the procession were still singing it out in the cleansed temple courts. It was also likely read out in synagogues the day before Palm Sunday. Have you never read? Indeed. Upon his triumphant entry, the public was singing this out with him in view. And here, Jesus places himself right in the middle of this same Passover liturgy. And in this use of common Passover liturgy, Jesus proclaims the end of one thing as a result of rejection, but something new emerging also, again with him at the center of it all. You see, the vineyard was always designed to be more than a national identity. Beyond Israel and in the inauguration of Christ's ministry, the vineyard can be described more widely as God's kingdom expression in the world now, which anticipates the kingdom expression that will one day be fully in place across the whole earth. A perhaps more progressive description of this comes from Scott McKnight, where he calls it God's kingdom dream for humanity. A more conservative one comes from R.T. Kendall, who calls the kingdom of God the place of the ungrieved Holy Spirit. In the parable, this beautiful vineyard still has huge potential for production. It has all it needs. It just needs better stewards. So after judging the old ones, the owner would instate a new tenancy with a better set of values. Stewards who would run the vineyard his way and ensure what is his comes back to him. The laborers of the current agreement have broken their contract. They were unproductive with their time and refusing to bear fruit despite having all they needed to do so. They had rejected and murdered the prophets. They were about to reject Jesus as king and take him outside the vineyard and do away with him. In their haste to do everything their way and keep the spoils of a vineyard they didn't build, they would do away with the main part of the structure, the rejected stone that held it together. Since this stone was rejected and had no place in the old structure, it would become the cornerstone of the new one. Jesus would be the stone that makes everything square and right again. He would be the stone that lays the right foundation. He would be the stone that holds it all together. We see some interesting allusions to Isaiah in what Jesus says here. The priests and the Pharisees in earshot knew where he's coming from with these. Isaiah chapter 8 verses 13 to 15 says this, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. With this in mind, Jesus says those who fight against him will shatter. Those who fall on him will break. Those on whom he wields judgment will succumb to his weight. The ones who reject him will be broken. But it goes on to say this in chapter 28, verse 16. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. So we have two forms of expression in play when it comes to how we engage with the rock of Christ. Reject or rely. Religion as they knew it, powerless, lifeless, and legalistic, would stumble on him and break because of the brittle expression it truly was. It had spent so much energy resisting that it will in three days' time have no strength to stand anymore. It will slay the Son and bring the judgment of the Father upon itself. 
But the ones who would trust his kingdom way would find this rejected stone to be a place of rebuilding, rest, and hope. These would become the new tenants of the kingdom, the ones who will play their part in a fruitful kingdom expression throughout the whole world. So let's reflect in a unique way on this. After a long time in faith, I've reached this conclusion. It is possible to hold an expression of Christianity that is strangely expressed without Jesus being in it all that much. In fact, one of my mentors once told me that a pastor can even lead a church seemingly well for a time without Jesus being involved all that much. If you are good at building audiences through your natural gift and charisma, you might overlook the work and leading of Christ that ensures your character, your calling, your conduct and motives are kept in check. It's not difficult to get there either. If you're like me, you can have occasional moments of realization that you've been faithfully at church every week and seemingly doing all the right things, but you've somehow become dry as a desert inside. You have hung with community, but haven't communed with Christ. Prayer has gone out the window for a time, scripture is a little aloof from us, and we find ourselves loving church folk and doing the things, but forgetting to consider the fruit. Momentum and movement stops, and maintenance and malaise kicks in. This parable speaks deeply to Israel, obviously. It's a statement of unambiguous judgment against them and the past and impending actions of their time. But it also speaks to the church today, collectively and individually. Consider the downfall of the vineyard. They had everything they needed to thrive given to them at the expense of somebody else, but only used it for themselves, not the owner of the vineyard. That's what grace is for us, favor unmerited which secures our eternal future, power from on high to live the way of the kingdom and bear fruit that will last. Put simply, we have everything we need in Christ to thrive and produce. But the Jewish elders and priests decided that they would self-determine their righteousness and do the vineyard deal their way, not God's. We can do that too, and this will ignore and reject grace. The elders and priests that Jesus was addressing had rejected every approach from the owner when he came looking for fruit. And more specifically, they rejected prophets and eventually the son. But our challenge in this parable is to rely on the son. If we are doing faith or church without Jesus, we are going to fall hard and loudly. Get back to Jesus in your devotion. Find your first love. Lean into the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. Where prophets are truly speaking, listen to them. I do believe there are prophets in our time. Not self-appointed crazy people, but simple, unopposing, accountable church folk who are hearing what the Spirit is saying to the church and sharing it faithfully with open hands and heart as they do so. Some are calling for justice and mercy and doing so faithfully. Some are rightly calling the church to return to the moral standards of the Lord. Others again are speaking truth to power. Not necessarily in Parliament, although there is a voice there, but in the church first and doing so because there sometimes needs to be a time where the church cleans house a bit. I see healthy binding and loosing going on in the church today through a healthy, accountable, prophetic presence. I'm also feeling like the truly prophetic voice of the church is simply calling us back to the business of being salt and light in the world, to be courageously doing something fruitful for the worldwide mission of God. So how do we do faith and church without Jesus? Simple, we forget grace and do everything in our own strength. We reject any calls to be fruitful and as a result forget the mission we are called to. We ignore the prophets who are sent to speak us back to the mission and we inevitably distance ourselves more and more from Jesus as we do that. But there is a remedy and Revelation chapter 2 presents it to us. Come back to our first love. Go back to the place where we fell, where the love began to falter. 
and from there get back on the agenda of the kingdom, being a reconciling and redeeming force in the world with Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about this podcast and other ministries I'm involved in, go to my new website, www.ministryinthedeepend.com.au. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and even YouTube. So please like, follow, subscribe, connect, and comment wherever you can. I'll look forward to catching up next time. See you then.